Hi there, and welcome to These Four Walls, the podcast that explores how we shape our spaces and how our spaces shape us. I'm Erin Potter, and ever since I was a little girl, I've had a fascination and infatuation with architecture and interior design. I drew my first floor plan at age eight, and from then on, with every spare second spent poring over architectural manuals and drafting documentation, the home became the object of my imagination. I adored all it had to offer, the prospect of a winding hallway, the refuge from the outside world, and an environment in which a family could grow in. Now, as something that might resemble an adult, my fascination with the spaces we inhabit remains, but I realize that I have far more questions than answers. This podcast is my excuse to ask questions to the architects, interior designers, and makers who continue to shape our built environments, so that we may all benefit from their experience, insight, and expertise. Throughout these conversations, I hope to dig deeper into the principles, philosophies, and techniques that underpin some of the finest contemporary design, and perhaps learn a trick of the trade or two. But underlying everything is an exploration of what the spaces we create can tell us about ourselves, what they reflect back to us about our way of life as individuals and as a culture. In other words, if these four walls could talk, what would they tell us? On this episode, I caught up with Christian Bentz, interior designer and writer extraordinaire on his blog, The Basic Principle. You can find him online at thebasicprinciple.com as well as Christian underscore Bentz, that is B-E-N-S-E on Instagram and across the socials, Christian underscore Bentz. With Christian's vast experience in everything from large-scale commercial property to high-end residential projects, he's learned a thing or two about what makes great design. Having worked extensively in both South Africa and the UK, and most recently with Turner Pocock in London, he's taking his experience and turning his keen eye towards designing for his own client base. We had a wonderful chat and explored many subjects from what makes good and bad design to the fundamental principles of art, and of course, we also looked at how our environments shape our habits. Let's jump in. Hi, Christian. Thanks so much for joining me today. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's, uh, it's a good little project you've got going here, so I'm quite glad to be involved. So thanks for having me. I'm very excited to chat with you today. Let's dive right in. Awesome. So can you describe to me what you do and who you do it for? So first and foremost, I am an interior designer. Um, I always say I am a South African-born interior designer living and working in London. Uh, and I say first and foremost interior designer because I sort of branched off recently to do um, a blog. But um, it also it starts with interior design and that's why I wake up in the morning and that's what I do. And primarily my focus in interior design and the company I've worked at over the last 10 years or so have been high-end um, residential design. Um, there's been the odd sort of commercial job thrown in. Um, my first job actually out of college was a 95 bedroom hotel which I think back now and I shudder because I just, I didn't know anything. I had no idea what I was doing, what I was doing it for. I just sort of like ran with emotions. Um, but yeah, so primarily high end residential design. Um, it's only in the last few months actually that I've finally branched out um, and gone on my own and started a new um, studio. Obviously not um, good timing with COVID. Um, I submit it's been a bit like, oh like really now like when, when I need this to happen um, but anyway I don't think there's ever a good a perfect time to, to quit your job and start on your own um, so in terms of what I do now and for who I do it for I think there's definitely a bit more of a flexibility um, my nine to five was super high end they had like systems in place and that's sort of who you work with um, but my whole 
design philosophy and approach is to be slightly more approachable um, in interior design, not necessarily cheap interior design, but approachable interior design. So I'm still trying to figure out what that means um, so that people can sort of have meaningful access to interior design. I think that's one of the ways and why I started the blog actually was to have that sort of like link between the two. Um, in terms of how I got here and um, my story, I think if you phone back in about five years time, I might have some more interesting <laughs> tale to tell. But um, basically it's a tale of hard work and determination. So um, I basically did really well at school. I worked super hard um, with the aim to get into a good college. I got into a good college, worked super hard, uh, graduated valedictorian. So I got a good first job, um, worked my ass off for three years to build up a really good portfolio. Um, and then after about three years, I was like, I'm no longer learning anymore. I was sort of doing my job, but I wasn't being taught anything. And I sort of felt at 24, I shouldn't be, I should still be learning. I shouldn't, this shouldn't be it. So I um, packed up and took one credit card and one <laughs> bag of clothes and I got on a plane and off I went to London. And then I used that good portfolio to get a good first job. Um, yeah, and I've been working, I've been working in a company for about five years in London. Um, and as I say, recently, I decided to say goodbye to that. Um, so yeah, not, not, exactly, not exactly an exciting story, but one of um, the lessons to be learned, so work hard <laughs> and, you'll, and you'll do well. Um, in saying that though, obviously, it, you know, interior design is quite a practical um, job. So you know, it's not so much about being book smart and being the top of the class and which software you can use the best. Um, it's all about practical stuff. And I was quite fortunate that early on in my career, those first three years in South Africa, I had quite good practical on-site stressful <laughs> learning experiences which I think put me in good stead for the rest. Do you think those on-site experiences accelerated your learning and then when at what point did you feel like you were stopped learning was that before or after the 95 room hotel? So that 95 bedroom hotel came like I didn't know my own name when I was doing that. Like it was so early on. I just I just put my hand up and I said, yeah, cool, I'll do it because it was capacity. Um, but yeah, so definitely on site you are, you're, I was seeing design being implemented before I was designing it. And so one that made me realize how important it is to have the back end right. So knowing what, how to design right because I was seeing it implemented and if I wasn't if I hadn't designed something or I hadn't thought of something I was seeing it going into play like straight away and I was like oh flip I've messed that up or I haven't thought about that thing so it really gave me that edge to know when I got into the real nitty-gritty of design what a junction meant in reality what a thin grout line was versus a thick one what like junctions were and stuff so uh, it definitely sort of sort of sped up my learning about um, being on site first. But in saying that, I don't think I should have been on site when I was on site. Like, I think it was a bit of cop force <laughs> sort of situation. But um, yeah, I, I, I look back at colleagues now and they haven't been on site in two years. And some of that, they just, there's no rationalization about problems because they actually haven't seen it in place. So um, yeah, I definitely think on site and that sort of practical experience is paramount. A lot to unpack there based on what you said. That's really exciting. I mean, working hard. What gave you that drive? Actually, when at college, I just knew I wanted to go to good college. Like I was a small town boy and I wanted to go to a good university and sort of get out. And I worked hard to get that, got my own scholarship. I, I did one year of a business degree and then it was like, no, nah, not, not for me, actually. 
um, and then I changed. So it was a bit of a, like there was a bit of a zigzag happening there, but it happened. Um, and then, you know, my, my dad's a builder, my mother's a photographer, my sister's an interior designer. So it's definitely a new interior design um, was what I wanted to do. And as soon as I started doing it, I went, cool, this is, this is it. Like, this is what I'm, I'm good at, what I'm, I'm meant to do. And then, you know, from, you know, from there, every job I've done has been interior design. So I have been doing probably the same nine to five type of job for the last 10 years. Like, every, like in South Africa and in the UK, my, my job description has been the same. Um, it's just been um, in different places. And I think when you've spent, one, you spend so much money on an interior design course, and you have that sort of like passion of an artist in you. You know, I was opening up magazines and sort of getting quite like heartsore that I wasn't at that level to have homes and magazines that like I was getting into magazines and stuff, but it wasn't like I don't feel like this is like groundbreaking design. And I just knew I was not at the right place, I wasn't in the right location, wasn't in the right country necessary to do that. So I just figured, let me go to Europe where I think the spotlight on design and interior specifically is a bit more bright. Other than your family being involved, and it sounds like you have quite a creative family, what do you think is the major draw to interior design? Um, I always try and answer this. I don't think I actually have a sort of like a sound answer. Apologies. But um, I, like I'm not one of those people who goes, oh, I love to move my room around as a kid, and I therefore got an interior design. Like, my older sister was that person. She used to play with Lego and build floor plans out of Lego and, like, do a room. And, like, that that wasn't me like at all like I never did that but one thing I always battled with was not being in a visually pleasing space and I think that's what it was it was that desire to make sure that wherever I am is the prettiest version of something so I always I always sort of tried to create an, you know whatever the budget whatever the scenario wherever you are just try to make the best version of that space that you can and I think that goes a long way so I think that was sort of my end. It was like, I just didn't want to, didn't want to be somewhere. Like I know the day when it actually happened when I went, Oh God, that's why we had to do, um, we had to go to like work experience at school. And I went to a law firm, like suit and tie, like off I went and I walked into the magistrate's office or whatever. And it was just like, gross. <laughs> it's like so horrible. And I remember sitting in the car with my mom and she's like, so how's that? I'm like I could never work in a space like that because it just was so ugly. And she's like, well, maybe that's what it is. Maybe you need to you know, be an interior designer. So I think that planted the seed. But it was really at that moment where I went, yeah, I, I can't, I need my life to be visually pleasing. And I need to do the best to try and create that visual appealing sort of scenario for whoever I can. Whether we are conscious of it or not, we are so susceptible to our environment. What impact then do you think our environment, and particularly our home environment, has on our behaviors, our emotions, and how can it be molded by interior design? I really think that design should lead the way um, we form our habits. Um, whenever a client tells me that, oh, we, we don't need that in our new house because we don't do that in our old one, I always get a bit annoyed because I'm like, well, yeah, of course you don't eat outside currently because you live in an apartment without a balcony, but now you've got a house with a garden, you can create these things. So I, I, th I do think you need to, I'm very much design led, like the, the building defines how it's laid out and all that sort of jazz. So I do think that you you need to let the buildings being the design lead the action, sort of create a space that ticks every box and answers every question that you might have, but then at the same time, allow it to redefine your habits and your 
to thinking in the way you live your life and you know like and just sort of practically speaking you know one example i had a client who had a big staircase and a big big empty space on top of a staircase and i said oh let's put a sofa in there oh we don't need a sofa why it's just a waste it's a sofa for the sake of a sofa put it in that sofa now becomes bedtime reading spot it becomes like a whole big family hub it was habits never they'd never used a space i get they never done bedtime stories together as a family but now they do um living in this current like covid19 lockdown world you know we our flat has got a separate kitchen separate living room and it's fine because when you've got people over you could have your kitchen and your mess one side entertaining the other now there's just two of us in the house and it always feels like one person's cooking and the other person's waiting for a meal so there's a big like separation between and so all of a sudden my checklist for what the next house needs to be is completely different to what it was before and that's just because i've been living in the space for a little bit longer for you know 23 hours a day nearly um so yeah there's definitely you know your environment changes the way you think the way you act and um i i'd say think interior design is so key in creating the perfect environment to redefine your habits really so as an interior designer you almost uh play the role of a psychologist uh, helping you know your clients to understand their current habits and behaviors, but also helping them understand how their physical environment can uh, actually, in fact, influence um, their habits, and, and oftentimes in a more positive way. That's so true. It really is true. I think, um, you know, it, I've always said that the psychologist reference as well, and I think it's so true, is that you're, it's not just about the prettiness and the cool furniture and fabrics and stuff. There really is a fundamental understanding of how people live in a space and I think that sort of separates just a decorator who you know might stage a room versus a designer which they really get into the fabric and DNA of a human to create the most ideal living space. Yeah it's interesting one thing I actually heard the other day now that I'm back in Canada I love watching uh, all the HGTV shows they've been running for decades now um, but one thing I've always noticed it's quite interesting that um, when they're redoing a, a house for a family um, and this family has an overabundance of stuff and their front closet is like packed with clothes and they have like three kids and the kids come home and they throw their jackets on the floor and they leave their shoes lying around and the mom says, go and go and clean up, go and tidy. And then their response as like, uh, I love it as the naivety of a child, they say, well, there's no room. I would put my clothes away, but there's, there's no room in the closet. And so it was just really interesting. I mean, I've heard that time and time again. So it's like their space is not set up. For them to live their ideal lives and the child recognizes this but the parents for some reason have an overabundance of stuff that actually limits their ability to use the spaces effectively um so i just thought that was like quite a an interesting theme yeah it's it's true like it really is true i think it's um yeah you if a kid can pick that up <laughs> yeah those like the, the cute things that kids see like through their like clear vision of life it was, it was really sweet. Uh, but I thought, yeah, it, ma it manifests itself in so many things. Anyways, back to it. When a client comes to you with a new project, what is the first thing you do? And what are some of the most important questions to ask? So a large part of my design process actually happens away from a client. So uh, without sort of day-to-day -day involvement from them. Um, so the first thing I do when I meet with a client is really get into their head as much as possible, whether it's me dumping myself into them or them giving me their brain so I can sort of understand exactly what they're like, how they think, what they want, etc. Um, I'm not a huge fan of a catchphrase, but um, there's about a million ways to design a house, but there's only one way to design yours. So in order to do that, I really need to think like you. 
and really uh, gets the core of what you want just so that I can then go and do my best work away from you. Because I think there's so many decisions and based on my design principles, which we'll get into and like the way I think about stuff, for me to rationalize every single decision I make to a client, one, we wouldn't be friends at the end of the day because I'd be so annoyed with you. And then two, your mind would blow because there are so many things to make and I couldn't verbalize every single one of them. Um, so I think it's so vital that I really understand the client and it might not be, they might not know what they like and what they don't like. That's, that's why they've hired you. You, know, you are that person to it for them. But I always like it when a client sees a bit of what they've suggested or they've hinted at or image they've given in a presentation, because it does then feel like it's a bit of them. You know, I never want the presentation as much as you want to surprise a client on presentation day. You never want it to be the first time they've seen something or seen an idea or heard of a suggestion. So it's, it's really, I, I spend quite a bit of time initially and I think actually a lot of the clients are like, okay, we're done now, <laughs> crack on, leave me, you know, go and go do your bit. But um, yeah, it's really getting to, to understand, understand them and who they are so I can do my bit and see them in eight weeks when I'm finished designing. Can you talk me through your design philosophy? So I am not a big fan of um, coming up with like, airy fairy sort of words to describe things. Um, but I, and also just because I, I, I think there's so much highbrow-ness to interior design, which I really want to try and like eradicate and sort of take all those like elitist language out. But in saying that, and I'm going to contradict myself a little bit here, is that my design philosophy is very much based on the principles of art. And it's those seven elements of design, like light, form, light, dark, color, shape, texture. Um, you know, at university and college, and you'll know, like doing a degree, you, you learn art history and you learn about Rembrandt, Vermeer and Monet and you know, all those sort of artists. And the reason why we learn about them is because you can physically see those elements in their work and how they applied to their work. And we sort of, you know, we've all had those essays where you have to talk about juxtaposition of colors and all that sort of jazz. So, you know, and but at the same time, those pieces of art are considered to be the best piece of art in history, you know, and because they have fundamental Sort of principles applied to them. Um, you know, yes, interior design is functional and needs to be livable, but also it's it's visual first and foremost. You know, if you, if you don't apply the same principles we do to art to the way you do interior design, you one, you're never going to get something that looks good because it's you know, and then true, you're never going to get something that's going to stand the test of time and be truly brilliant. And I think people, I think people forget that you know that it's not just about putting. Um, love like lots of furniture in a room and going great it's like new furniture that's fab you know there's more to it and I think if you apply those principles make sure you are trying to find rhythm trying to find balance trying to find color trying to find you know texture all that sort of jazz you know as you design you are creating three-dimensional art and I think I think that's where it sort of gets a little bit like airy theory but actually it is that you know you sort of you you're taking what you've learned from an artist and applying it into a three-dimensional world you know it's not like it's not like flower arranging where you can pick a bunch of flowers and they all look pretty and then together they all look pretty in a big bunch great that's you know bouquet of flowers interior designs not like that you can't just throw a room full of nice pretty new things and expect it to be a well-considered interior design there's so many other elements to it and you know it's, it's always linking back to those principles those elements of design that i think underline my design philosophy and uh, let's circle back and talk about your blog, The Basic Principles, where you write all about the do's and don'ts of design, the fundamental rights and wrongs like you're talking about. 
what principles do you find yourself telling people over and over again? So something I always, always start with is the question, why? And I think that comes up the most. You know, people invariably they only ask or they only speak up when they feel like something isn't working. It's sort of human nature. They're not going to ask for help when it's going right. Um, so whenever there's a problem, I always ask them, like, why they got to that point. So, like, they, it didn't necessarily mean that they've started and they've buggered it up and now they're like, oh, crap, and it's too late to go back. It's almost like I think a lot of people get to that point in their brain where they, they reach the hurdle before it's actually happened. So I always ask, okay, why, why did you think that? Or why do you want to do that? And to be honest, 99% of the time, they don't have a valid reason. Like, I'll give, I'll give you that. They'll go, oh, well, uh, I, I thought that, or I saw that, or I like that. There's sort of no tear down, like a deeper layer than I like, or I wanted, or, you know. And really, I think, like, if, if you don't have a rational thought behind every decision you make, it's always just going to, it's going to, like, fall flat a little bit. Um, I it's not necessarily like every question has to have this deep and meaningful like oh why did you choose that you know but there is I think if you some will be complex and those are the ones where perhaps the problem will arise from and some will be easy and you just go yes I like that and I like orange and therefore I'm going to have orange that's simple as that but I think if you don't ask the question why you'll probably find that you've made a mistake and it's, yeah, that's why that's why always why 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 and then we can unpack interesting and I suppose that's where the psychology comes in as well um in your designs, you focus on texture and creating a strong interplay between aesthetic and practical living, as we've been talking about. How do you achieve this balance of form and function? So I am a, I have to admit, I am very much form before function. <laughs> I know we were just chatting earlier that like everything's about function, but I, I, my default setting is sometimes more form. And I do have to reel it in. And I know that going in, so like, that's it. But in the same breath, what being an interior designer, you are creating a livable home. And by creating a livable home, you are by default creating something functional. So I always then think, amp up the form whilst you're creating something functional. It's like a car. Four tires or four wheels and an engine, you've got a functional car. Tick. That's a car. All the rest of it, the color, the leather interior, the spokes, all that sort of, that's all form, you know? So once you've designed the, like the fundamentals of what it means to have a family, a bedroom, what is a bedroom? A bedroom is a bed in a room. That's a bedroom. All the other bits are really bits that you can add to it. So I feel like that's where my um, form versus function happens. Um, I, it's not a, it's really not a 50-50 sort of mathematical split that you kind of have to try and work out the, the principles of. Um, you know, I did a blog the other day about um, that sort of magic triangle where people think in the kitchen, you've got to have this like triangle between your sink and your fridge and your hob, whatever. And um, I, I, my, my thinking is that, you know, going back to the question about you know, how you live in this space, is rather than design something that's aesthetically balanced and aesthetically pretty, and then um, you, you relearn habits around that. So yes, if your, your sink might be in one corner, your fridge might be in another, whatever the case is, you, you, can, you can relearn those sort of habits and those way of um, working around things. So um, yeah, I'm, my form and function is quite, um, is probably not on the same scale as everybody else, but I think, yeah, as I say, you, you, what you are ultimately doing is creating a functional home because that's what people want. And that will always be the default so therefore, in and around that, you can kind of amp up the, the form. How they're going to manifest themselves. 
um, yeah. so soon after <laughs> this pandemic. Um, let's talk a little bit more about specifics, uh, the bathroom and kitchen space. How do you approach these very functional spaces when you're designing them for clients? So I am a big believer, again, with the whole form function thing, that your bathroom should be a melting pot of all the finishes that you've got in your home. I think I've mentioned in a blog before that you know, a, a well-designed bathroom or well-considered bathroom or well-considered kitchen is a true testament to well-considered home. So there's nothing worse than a house that's got all the bells and whistles elsewhere. And then you've got these like cold white block add-ons for a bathroom that really don't speak for the design language of the rest of the house. You know, you walk in and go, yes, it's a clinical space. Yes, it's a bathroom. It needs to be easily cleaned. But it's not like, you know, a surgical theater where you need to hose it down every night or it's not like a butcher's where you take a hose to your kitchen, you know, like you get it. We don't live in that manner, you know. So I, I think you really need to, we need to start paying a little bit more attention to how we incorporate fabrics into those rooms, how we incorporate, you know, organic tones and organic lines as opposed to just hard and soft. Um, you know, so I really, yeah, I think the best way to go into a bathroom or kitchen design is to just, Yes, practical, obviously, but um, I think if you can try and create it as a little snapshot of all the other design ideas that you've put into bedrooms and kitchens and living rooms and all that jazz, if you can try and capture them all in a bathroom um, and a kitchen, then I think you, you're doing yourself big favors. I love that idea. And I, I loved reading your post on uh, the downstairs loo. And like you said, this is like, you know, really defines the space or really is a reflection of the rest of the building. Yeah, it's so true. I think, especially the downstairs loo. I think there's a downstairs loo and then there's like other bathrooms where people don't go to. I think people have become so, like, especially in the UK, like the downstairs loo is like the place. Like there is like, if you don't have a good downstairs loo, like don't even have people over. But then there's like the master bathroom, for example, where, you know, if you take a family dynamic, the master bathroom will get used by two people. Maybe the bath in the master bathroom gets used once a month. So in terms of being a cold, hard clinical space, the master bath never really gets used. So why I place so much emphasis on how easy it is to be cleaned, how like the surfaces, the corners, the junctions, all that stuff, just rather create a space that's like lovely to look at. You know, when you use it once, but yeah, you might have to put a mop behind the bath and clean it up. But to be honest, you're doing it once a month and so so what, you know? So um, yeah, I do think you would think a bit more, you know, globally in terms of how the space is used rather than just go a bath a bath or a, a kitchen's a kitchen, you know, so. What was something that you wish you knew when you were just starting out? So I am actually reading a book now. I, I finished it last night, actually. Um, it's called like Business for Bohemians or something. And I think some people might get it and some people won't. But for me, it resonated where the passion of doing the job and the reward of doing your job was more important than the money you got for doing it. Yeah, some people are like, sorry, it's all about the cash. But like for me, I, I really get like enjoyment out of doing my job. But it was only until I got to London that I realized that having set parameters to how you do your job, communicating those set parameters to a client, so that when the job changes from being a passion project to being an actual business interchange of money and you know, like all the practicalities that go along with being an interior designer, you can't just run the job on passion alone. Like they have to be parameters set in place. And I like I, my first three years as an interior designer were blur because they were just, I never knew when to say no. I never knew when to tell a client, oh, it's going to take six weeks to do something and not I'll do it tomorrow. Or when a client had to pay or when that client could make a decision or make a change or X, Y, and Z, you know, all those things. 
Now, it's in black and white. The client, when I get a new client, they get a five-page document saying, hey, this is how it works. And yeah, I, I literally wish I had done that. Like, obviously, I was working for another person, so you know, their systems are theirs, but we just didn't have that. And so you just run around like a headless chicken trying to just please everyone because you're so passionate about giving them a lovely house that you would like, you know, you're working yourself sick trying to do stuff, which just wasn't, you know, as much as you can be passionate and we are passionate, and I hope everyone's passionate about their job, you do need to have sort of set things in place. So it's defining what those are early on is tip number one, trust me. <laughs> and how did you go about defining what that system was or what those processes were? So I think that goes back to the whole idea of I was young and I wasn't learning anymore. So when I moved to the UK and I, I got hired at, a, at, at Turner Pocock and they were like, this is how we do things. I was like, oh my God, they are so simple. <laughs> like actually, it's not like high, like high level, like intelligence stuff. It's just, this is how we do it. Bam. You know? And you know, obviously you work at a company for X amount of time and you, you sort of, you develop these things. And I think, very often, you know, it's different between a boss saying this is how you do something versus the man on the ground realizing how you do something and actually doing it hands-on. Um, so I'm sort of quite fortunate now that I've got this experience of three years in South Africa where it's a bit like frantic and ah, like all over. And then I've got like quite regimented way of doing something in London. So I'm trying to find that middle ground that suits me and my passion-driven sort of design, as well as then obviously having quite set parameters so someone knows how you work. So yeah, it was really just... I think it's that's just that is that is time in the saddle, you know, like working and having that experience. That's where these things come into play. You know, you're not going to learn this stuff if you finish college and start a business. You'll never, you, unfortunately, you won't. You won't really value, you know, those things. But um, yeah, that's time in the saddle stuff. Thanks again for joining me on another episode of These Four Walls. It was a great pleasure to speak with Christian. And if you're interested in learning more about the service Christian offers or you want to read a refreshing and pragmatic approach to the fundamentals of design, head over to Christian's blog at thebasicprinciple.com. Or you can also find him on Instagram and across the socials at Christian underscore Bence. That is B-E-N-S-E. All links mentioned in this episode can also be found in the show notes. Until next time, cheers!